If you're wondering how to navigate difficult relationships, communicate more skillfully, regulate your nervous system in the midst of conflict, and set fierce boundaries that heal and empower, you are in the right place. You belong, right here where you already are. I'm your host, Dr. Cindy, and I invite you to grab a cup of tea and your favorite blanket and rest as you join me on this journey home to yourself. Welcome back to the Welcome You podcast. This is episode four, and today we'll be talking about our addiction to love and why we compromise ourselves to belong. I wonder how many of you who are listening have ever gone back to a romantic relationship that you know isn't healthy for you, or maybe you've continued to participate in toxic friendships or workplace dynamics, even when the actions of others and what was expected of you is hurtful or unkind, or you just know in your gut that it doesn't feel good to be a part of this relationship. Today we'll explore our longing to belong. Also this tendency that we have to go out seeking pleasure and reward and the parts of our brain that are actually responsible for feeling satisfied and feeling like we have met our core needs for pleasure and feeling like we are a part of relationships that matter. I know for myself that feeling like I was good enough was a very difficult journey. When I first met my now ex-husband, I was nearing 30 years old. I was really struggling to feel attractive, worthwhile of a man's attention. I had not yet really had any successful adult relationships outside of one very beautiful relationship I had in college. When I found my ex, he actually actively rejected me from the very beginning. I really refused to see this because there was this way that I could make him feel better. He was already in a deep depression when I met him, but in my presence and when we added alcohol and weed and maybe even some cocaine to the equation, both of us felt this kind of surge of acceptance and resonance and physical connection. Our relationship was basically built from a foundation of a friends with benefits framework, and we would end up, you know, late at night after many drinks and being intoxicated in a number of different ways, you know, he would end up coming back to my place because he lived over the bridge in San Francisco, and it wasn't safe, of course, for him to drive in his condition. So he would come back to my place and you know, we were both altered at that point, and one thing would kind of lead to another, and we would end up sleeping together. Even in those experiences, when I look back on how those unfolded, I can remember the rejection and the pushing away and this kind of desperation that I had to be wanted and to be accepted. And so, you know, I would kind of take advantage of him as much as I hate to admit it. I would come on to him and, and try to seduce him. And when he finally got aroused or became interested, I would feel this great sense deep in my core of worthiness and acceptance. And I would 
kind of repeat this pattern over and over again. And it became very confused in my neural circuitry in terms of what was a feeling of love and what was just my brain's reward system firing and, and dumping dopamine and oxytocin into my system because I was experiencing all of these kind of different layers of pleasure. So this is one of these places in my kind of wiser adult self that I wish I could go back in time and give my younger 20-something-year-old self the kind of understanding and the information that I didn't have at the time, that I didn't need to compromise myself to find a relationship. I didn't need to kind of desperately grasp and seek for someone to love me just in case I was not going to find it because I felt like, you know, here I am getting close to 30 and I want to have children. And how's that going to happen if I've never even had a connected long-term relationship or an opportunity to deepen with someone? You know, I wish I could really offer myself a couple of things kind of going back in time. And one of those is being worthy, holding myself with enough respect and care that I wasn't settling for these, you know, drunken flings and chasing after somebody who refused to even call me his girlfriend for a very long time, who really actively pushed me away when he was sober and clear-headed. There were so many signs that I didn't see because I didn't want to see them because I was so desperate. One of those was that when I would end up sleeping at his place, uh, he had a twin-size mattress on a queen-size bed frame. And he had these like slats, this bed frame that had slats going across it. I would spend the night there and he would have me sleep on the slats rather than giving me the mattress. And so I <laughs> I think there was maybe a thermarest or a mattress pad, like a camping pad that would be put down. But looking back, like I just can't even believe that I my younger self tolerated being treated in that way. I mean, I feel like I should have just walked out of there and, and turned away from that. But I was so paralyzed and afraid of being rejected because of, you know, so many ways that I had been rejected already in my upbringing as a large-bodied person, but also because of this kind of core abandonment wound that I had that I, I didn't really understand was impacting me the way it was, but I was put up for adoption when I was a year and a half old. And so there's this way that, you know, losing your primary caregiver at that age, it creates kind of an abandonment complex where you either avoid relationships completely because you don't want to make yourself vulnerable to being abandoned again, and or you get into relationships that are not healthy and you stay there because you're afraid of being left and you compromise yourself and you do whatever it is that's necessary to make the other person feel satisfied enough with you in the relationship that they will not leave. So Harvard Medical School actually did a study in the spring of 2015 on love and the brain, and they found some things that make my experience with my ex make a lot of sense. One is that when we are love struck, this releases really high levels of dopamine, which is a chemical associated with our reward system. When our reward circuit is activated, we experience pleasure. 
dopamine floods into us when we experience romantic love. And it is similar to the euphoria that's associated with the use of cocaine or alcohol. So if we think about how this lines up with addiction science, addiction is defined as continued use despite adverse consequences. Basically, we may be physiologically addicted to a certain substance, such as alcohol or cocaine, but it's the pleasure, the reward system, the flood of dopamine and oxytocin into our system that we really get hooked on because our brain is kind of constantly seeking ways to feel good, especially in a world where we have so many influences that make us feel bad about ourselves. There are so many messages about our worthiness and our image, our attractiveness, our achievement, and we're being flooded all the time with messages that we're not good enough and that we need to improve ourselves in order to find belonging or to find love. So it makes a lot of sense that we might go seeking or chasing after any hint or any sign of romantic love, or we may end up seeking pleasure from addiction to substances that can give us that instant gratification, that instant hit of dopamine. They did a study also with male fruit flies at the Harvard Medical School, where they showed that the male fruit flies that were sexually rejected drank four times as much alcohol as fruit flies that mated with female fruit flies. So the fruit flies that were not getting laid, they resorted to drinking. I wonder if this sounds familiar to anyone. It also gives me, it's also a relief to hear this personally, because my use of alcohol and cocaine during that time in my life was really kind of out of character for me. It makes more sense now, knowing what I know, that I would find a refuge in those substances because the sense of belonging and pleasure that I was getting from my attempt at romantic love was not satisfying because my emotions, my feelings were not being reciprocated. In fact, I was having to kind of turn a blind eye, so to speak, to the fact that I was really being rejected over and over again. And so I was hooked. I was hooked on these feelings and this dopamine hit, even despite adverse consequences, despite being shut down, told that I wasn't good enough, made to feel like I was unattractive. I kept coming back. What a fool I was. <laughs> Another thing that this Harvard study revealed is that when we are engaged in romantic love, the part of our brain that's responsible for clear thinking and decision-making, and also the part of our brain that is responsible for fear and social judgment and negative emotions, shuts down. We kind of turn off our logical mind, our, our thinking brain, when we're having these feelings of infatuation. This is kind of the neural basis for the phrase, love is blind. And sometimes it can take years for couples to emerge from this, you might call it a honeymoon phase of their relationship and start to 
have a realistic sense of the person that they're in a relationship with. In my work with survivors of emotional abuse and narcissistic abuse, I hear the term trauma bonding a lot. I meet people regularly who return to relationships that are emotionally draining, physically hostile, and unsafe because they claim they are in love with the person who is abusing them. So trauma bonding can happen with a captive who develops feelings for their captors, or it can also happen, it's much more common actually in romantic relationships, where a partner rationalizes abusive actions and stays with the abuser. Trauma bonds start where abuse occurs, and then there's manipulation that happens, where the abuser gets the person to believe that what they're experiencing is love, the kind of devastation, and then that following swing of emotions back to the release of oxytocin and pleasure chemicals. And then this creates a cycle where the person hopes that it will get better, but the abuse actually continues. The hope is where we can get really trapped or locked into these cycles. And for me, with my ex-husband, when I first met him, he would go through these big swings of depression. My presence and my encouragement seemed to be able to lift him out of that depression. And then he would express feelings of gratitude that I mistook for affection towards me, and I would get the reward that I had been seeking. And then inevitably, he would sink back into another episode of depression, pulling me down with him to some extent. And then I would again make him feel better. And so I was always hoping that I could be the one to help. And this also got us locked into a kind of codependent dynamic where I became the enabler in the relationship. It took me a really long time, long after we divorced, for me to start to understand that my trying to help him was actually keeping both of us locked in the cycle and that it was actually causing harm. It was preventing him from developing the capacity to help himself. And I mentioned this a little bit in the episode where I talked about boundaries and how not helping and shutting off communication was actually an act of kindness that gave him the agency and the autonomy to be able to do for himself what I had been trying to do for him. This is a really tricky line because we want to, as caring people, we want to help and we want to stick around and support someone while they get better which is why people stay locked into relationships even after they've been hit or berated or completely financially drained or spiritually drained because they believe that they can make it better for the other person. In order to break free from these trauma bonds, just like breaking the cycle of any addiction, first we have to bring attention to what's actually happening. We have to acknowledge that we have a problem. We have to acknowledge that we are addicted, which again, to define it, is continued use despite adverse consequences. So continued engagement in relationship despite a cycle of abuse that continues. 
we need to find a way to press pause and step back from the situation and see it from this kind of rational, logical mindset that's actually not available when our system is being flooded with oxytocin and serotonin and dopamine chemicals. Giving yourself a little bit of distance and a little bit of space can go a really long way so that you can objectively, and you may need the help of a caring friend or a therapist to help you do this, but so that you can objectively look at the evidence and see what's happening in the present moment. If I had had somebody back when I was sleeping on those slats to point out that that was total bullshit, I might have been able to see things a little bit differently than they were. But unfortunately, I was kind of new in town and my ex-husband was my only friend at the time. So we became really locked into this dynamic together and I didn't have the capacity to pull away and see what was really unfolding with any wisdom or any discernment. Rather than hoping that the person is going to change, what we need to be able to do is we need to be able to look at their actual behaviors and their actions rather than their promises. And so if I had looked at what was happening with my ex, I would have seen the sulking and the complaining and the blaming and the judgment and the berating and the down-talking and dismissing and minimalizing because they were all happening back then too. I just didn't want to see it. Or maybe because that part of my brain wasn't online and I was flooded with all my pleasure chemicals, I couldn't see it. There needs to be some opportunity to pull back and give yourself permission to objectively notice what is actually happening in the present moment in your relationship rather than what happened in the past where you had all those feelings of love, rather than what you hope will happen in the future when you believe that the person will climb out of rock bottom or stop smoking so much weed or drinking so much alcohol or figure out that hitting you and choking you is hurtful and that it's harming your relationship. They may not figure those things out and it's not actually your job to bring them there into that knowing. It is your job to be responsible for your own emotional well-being. And it is also your job to set your partner free to be responsible for their own emotional well-being. This can be really hard to do when we're in a habit. And so we can actually apply the science of habit change and some tools that have worked for addiction recovery in this landscape of relationships. So the first thing we can do is to practice this radical self-care and positive self-talk. And I mentioned in the last episode this as a strategy, just starting to speak your worthiness into truth. You can start with some of these phrases like, I am enough. I deserve love that is soft and gentle. I deserve to receive. I deserve safety. Give yourself permission to speak those things into truth and to practice the kind of corresponding self-care and fierce boundary setting that makes that possible. So had I known to give myself these messages of worthiness 
when I was 28 years old and locked into this cycle of chasing after someone who was rejecting me, I would have maybe been able to counteract all of those pleasure chemicals dumping into my system by recognizing that the actions and behaviors of my partner were not actually matching up with my self-worth and my beliefs that I deserved better. I deserved love that was kind. I deserved to be seen and to be known and to be cared for rather than have to take care of and drain myself completely in order to help this other person meet their emotional needs. So the other piece here is to know that our nervous systems are highly contagious. The people that we surround ourselves with really influences our mind state. And so if we want to rebuild our confidence and our self-esteem, we want to make sure that we're not surrounding ourselves with people who are depleting us or who are judging us so much that we end up feeling like we're questioning our worthiness after our interactions with them. So we see a lot of people talking about toxic relationships. And I would invite you to look around in your life, even beyond your intimate partnerships, and start to consider what are you taking in? What are the relationships that are influencing you doing to your self-image and your beliefs about your worthiness? Because in my opinion, love, whether it's friendship love or romantic love, love should lift you up. Love should make you feel like the best version of yourself. You should come away from interactions with people who love you, feeling full and energized and nourished and cared for and regarded and respected. You should feel like the truest, most beautiful version of yourself when you're around people who highlight your beauty and your worthiness. The Welcome You Podcast is a production of Safe Within Wellness, an organization dedicated to supporting survivors of complex and systemic trauma in healing their wounds of belonging and thriving in relationship to themselves. Please help us keep our content ad-free and accessible to all by donating at safewithinwellness.com. Your presence and support matter more than you know. So in order to start to break this habit cycle that keeps us locked into these interpersonal dynamics, as well as locked into negative relationship with our own worthiness, I'm going to introduce you to a practice here that we can apply to this experience to help us pause in moments of reactivity or impulsivity, slow down and notice what's happening in the present moment. And then this brings the part of our brain back online that is available to make a wise choice. So the acronym is STOP, and this stands for stop, take a breath, observe, and proceed. When we notice that we're getting hijacked, that we're getting pulled out of our capacity to be in the driver's seat of our own attention and to make choices with awareness, we can stop. So in this moment, my invitation to you is to take a full breath all the way in and all the way out and to notice the sensations in your body, the movement of air in and out of your lungs. Just get a sense, a felt sense of your body breathing. One full breath is all it takes. 
And then the invitation is to observe. Observe your present moment experience. Where is there tension in your body? What information is available from the sensations in your gut or in your heart? What impulses does your body have? Are there fists that are clenching or is there tightness in your jaw? Or is there tension in your shoulders? Are you bracing for impact in any part of your body? So this observe is this next step. And then you can proceed. So you can move forward with awareness. And this is so much different than being driven by reactivity or a habitual pattern of grasping for belonging. So anytime you just notice you're getting caught up in a habit, see if you can stop. Bring attention to your present moment experience and use this stop practice to get yourself back in the driver's seat. What using this stop practice can do is interrupt what happens between the trigger and the behavior. So this is a really important place in habit change to bring some mindful attention. And what we can do next, once we have paused and given ourselves a little bit of space to make a choice, then what most likely is happening is this urge that often becomes quite overwhelming, often to the extent that people who are trying to quit whatever substance or habit they're addicted to, they end up giving in at the point where the urge becomes what they feel is unbearable. And so the next step in changing these habits is to do what we can call surf the urge. Now, this is a practice that is going to involve some intentional cultivation of the capacity to be with discomfort. You may or may not have the time or the attention span to be able to sit in meditation and develop this skill by like not scratching the itch or sitting in a posture that feels uncomfortable for longer periods of time, and that's okay. However, it is really important in making an effort to change a habit to start to build this capacity to be with discomfort. There's a lot of ways that we can do this. One is just by starting to identify the sensations in your body. A lot of times when we are addicted to either substances or a habit of mind, it's taking us away from our felt experience and from our sensations in our body and into this kind of realm of pleasure chemicals or numbing or dissociating or actually going away from our experience. So my next invitation, as you start to cultivate this capacity to surf the urge, is to do a practice such as a body scan or yoga. Mindful movement is a really powerful tool for starting to understand what's actually happening in your body in the present moment and also for embodying these qualities that you want to cultivate in yourself. So for example, when you stand in a warrior pose, this is a pretty strong pose and it doesn't require a huge amount of effort from your body. You can even modify the pose into a seated warrior pose. But what you're doing is you're bringing those qualities of strength and engagement into your body from fingertip to fingertip and from the top of your head down to the bottoms of your feet. 
and you're taking up residency in the posture itself. It doesn't have to look a certain way. It doesn't have to look like a yoga teacher. It doesn't have to be in perfect alignment. But really, doing mindful movement, and even if it's just a few stretches each day, just gives you the opportunity to be with the body you already have and get to know the language of physical literacy. So getting to become familiar with the coming and going of sensations in your body and also being able to watch the sensations rise and fall, just like an urge would. For example, if what we're trying to quit is smoking cigarettes, if you have experience with smoking cigarettes, you might know that the craving comes on and then it gets stronger and stronger until it maybe feels unbearable, like you might even die if you don't get a cigarette. And actually studies of cigarette smokers who are trying to quit on airplanes has shown that if they do not have access to a cigarette during that long period of time, what happens with the urge is that eventually it subsides. And so the same thing happens with physical discomfort in our bodies. If we are engaged in a posture that maybe is a little bit difficult or maybe brings an intensity of sensation, and we're willing to take the time to bring this investigation and curiosity to the experience of sensation in our body rather than impulsively or habitually reacting to the discomfort and pulling away from it, but instead actually leaning into it and bringing some investigation to it, this can really help build neural pathways that give our brain the information that we can actually survive discomfort for long enough that the urge will pass. And so this is a multi-step process, changing a habit. We pause and we notice that we're engaged in a destructive behavior and that we are continuing to use despite adverse consequences. And then we start to bring attention to our felt experience and notice what's happening in our body. Surfing the urge then involves getting really curious about the sensations and building that capacity within ourselves to know that the discomfort is not going to kill us. One way to actually practice this that's a little bit silly that I like to do with educators and with students when I work in schools is what I'll call the ice cube challenge. And so if you're willing to do this at some point, maybe even while listening right now, the practice involves just putting an ice cube into the palm of your hand and letting it rest there until it melts. And as the sensations become more and more intense, really practicing this bringing curiosity and investigation to them. What are the sensations? How do you know that it feels uncomfortable? Is there tingling or prickling or numbness or bracing or tensing? And just taking the time to explore the sensations and maybe even befriending the sensations which may be a difficult pill to swallow, but seeing if you can kind of welcome them as information, like, wow, this is really cold and really uncomfortable. What do I notice? Well, I notice that holding an ice cube in the palm of my hand is not very pleasant and that I'm also surviving, that it's not killing me. I'm not actually getting frostbite 
and it's not overwhelming my nervous system to such an extent that I can't survive. And so this is a really powerful learning for a nervous system that actually happens outside of cognitive awareness, but more of an embodied learning. So the more opportunities you can take to teach your body, teach the kind of deeper layers of your body mind that you do indeed have the capacity to ride the waves of discomfort and to survive even when the sensations or the cravings seem unbearable. And so imagine for a moment, if you will, the implications of being able to ride the waves of discomfort with some compassion towards your own experience and also with the capacity to avoid getting hijacked by the urge for survivors of emotional abuse or domestic violence. Often survivors in these situations go back again and again, even though they are walking right into continued abuse. A lot of this has to do with the patterning and the habit forming in the trauma bond that tells us that we have to return. If we can be with the discomfort of that urge long enough to let it rise and pass, what will most likely happen is that the thinking part of our brain will have a chance to come back online and override that desperation, that addiction for the pleasure-seeking chemicals. In the last episode, I shared about a friend who had struggled with a domestic violence situation and a severe trauma bond and recognizing that it was her own kind of self-loathing that was playing out in the relationship and causing her to open herself up to her abuser coming back into her life again and again. In working with this friend, I was able to help her recognize these feelings, these urges to be with this person as a addiction and as a trauma bond rather than real love. As hard as it is to break free from those bonds and to do it differently, just the capacity to be able to step back and notice what was happening in real time and to be with the sensations of discomfort allowed her to just the other day finally call the cops and get her abuser put away and file a restraining order against him. This is a very powerful learning. Even after he had been taken away in the cop car, she texted me that she was feeling sick, that she really like literally could throw up. And it reminds me of that kind of hungover feeling, that withdrawal that we get after a night of heavy drinking or drug use. And this feeling of having this person so deeply energetically entwined in our system and in our neural pathways and in our release of pleasure chemicals, that without the possibility of that anymore, we actually can go through like a physiological withdrawal. If she is listening, she knows who she is. I just want her to know how proud I am of her for speaking up to her right to safety and for being able to slow down enough to bring some caring and kind attention to what was actually happening 
rather than getting lost in the ideas of what could be or what she wished would happen or the hope of being able to change him underneath of it all, believing he's really a very good person, but really coming into that reality of the present moment by interrupting the habit and that cycle of abuse. If you're listening right now and there's someone in your life who is struggling with domestic violence, the best way that you can support them is to lift them up, to help them recognize their worthiness and how lovable they are. And so you can shower them with these messages of encouragement and grace and worthiness just as much as you can, letting them know that they are enough. You can also refer them to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which is at thehotline.org. And the phone number there is 1-800-799-7233. They have people who can answer the phone 24 hours a day and get you help. And I needed this hotline when I was in the mess because I didn't believe that what I was experiencing actually counted as domestic violence. But in calling them, I actually got validation and confirmation that I did deserve to be safe. I did deserve to be regarded and respected and to not have my peace interrupted. I deserved not to be harassed. And they also gave me guidelines for how to collect evidence and next steps to take so that I could keep myself and my daughter safe. So again, that's 1-800-799-SAFE. 799-7233. If you need them, that's why they're there. It's an excellent resource. One thing I would definitely recommend you do not do is try to intervene with the abuser or to try to convince the person in your life who is being abused that they need to leave. This decision really does come from them and they really need to make this decision from a place of their own worthiness. You can encourage them and just remind them a thousand times that they deserve better. But please do not put yourself in harm's way thinking that you are going to fight off someone's abuser. I want to offer you also a couple of really solid tools for working with habit change and starting to really map out your habit loops I recommend a couple of books to you by the author, Dr. Judson Brewer. He's a researcher and mindfulness educator out of Brown University, and he's done a tremendous amount of work with habit change. His first book is called The Craving Mind, and it really unpacks addiction and cravings. And he developed a very successful smoking cessation program and an accompanying app that actually showed better results than the American Lung Association's smoking cessation program. His second book is called Unwinding Anxiety. And this one is actually, I think, on point as far as actually changing habits. And he kind of breaks it down in a really practical step-by-step way where he offers these tools with which you can identify your triggers and Isolate the perceived reward from the actual result. And a lot of times this is where people who are struggling with addiction stay stuck, is that they are seeking a reward that actually doesn't come and they're unable to 
really identify what actually happens in a state of awareness. So if you can take the time to take a look at Unwinding Anxiety by Dr. Judson Brewer, it may just give you the tools to be able to map out your habit loops, even in the landscape of relationships, and be able to replace the behavior that leads to the perceived reward with an alternate kind of bigger, better offer that actually gives you the desired result. So all these practices that I've offered you today are based in a love affair with your own experience. So taking the time to really cultivate this relationship with yourself and to bring some kindness and compassion to yourself and also to lay a foundation so that you're investing in your future self and building the capacity to tolerate the waves of discomfort that come when you're being triggered or pulled into habitual behaviors that may not have a positive outcome, even though maybe they once did. I know that every time that I went back to engaging with my ex-husband, it was because I had this hope that it could be like it was that one time. And same with my addiction to various drugs and substances. There was this one time or maybe a few times in my early days of using that it felt really good or I had a really beautiful or profound existential experience. And so then as that habit becomes more deeply ingrained, there's some part of me that's always trying to get as high as I once did that one time and it never feels achievable. So you keep going and going in search of that unreachable pleasure that you know is out there somewhere. So my wish for you, dear listeners, is that you can come home to yourselves in the same way that a loving mother might welcome her child home from war. Wrapping yourself in the arms of loving awareness and compassion and patience and kindness and giving yourself permission to have big feelings, to be uncomfortable, and to know that you're going to survive even if you don't get the immediate gratification that comes from engaging in a behavior that's harmful. You deserve better. You are worthy of your own love and care, and you are worthy of setting fierce boundaries that keep you safe and protected. I also wish you the wisdom and the discernment to be able to identify the relationships in your life that are beautiful and healthy and nourishing to you and to start to lean into those relationships a little bit more. What you take in matters. What you fill your well with and how you nourish yourself matters. The seeds that you water grow, and you deserve to be watered with kindness and care. So that chime means that it is time for Get Down and Dirty with Dr. Cindy where you can call in with your questions and challenges, and I'll do what I can to offer some mindfulness-based practices and therapeutic skills that you can apply in response to what you're facing. You can call 719-759-9471 and leave an up to three minute voicemail sharing your story. And I encourage you to do this even if you aren't sure whether your story is relevant to anyone else because 
one of the tendencies of survivors of relational trauma and emotional abuse is to minimalize their story and to believe that they're the only one experiencing this. The Buddhists say, no mud, no lotus. And this is kind of a metaphor for how when we are willing to get our hands dirty or to explore these areas of difficulty, then we have this opportunity to turn poison into medicine and to blossom. So let's go ahead and dive into the muck with today's caller. Hey, good afternoon. I hope you're doing well. Um, thank you for this space. I am a addict in recovery uh, from Washington. My question is, how do I find healing for something that I don't really know how to go about it? I was a single mom for 17 years and focused on raising my daughter. And um, I am a recovering alcoholic and a sex addict. And I go to church and I meditate and I ask God to help me with my sex addiction. But I constantly feel lonely and I seek in men protection and love and warmth through sex. But I know there's got to be a deeper root that I need to heal. And so I have a really hard time um, digging into that. I don't know if um, um, part of my growing up, um, my mom and dad left me in Mexico when I was four and a year later reunited with me. Um, I don't know if that was the trauma that I caused or just my dad not being able to show, show love, not being able to hug me and tell me that he loved me. I don't know if that was the cause. Um, my mom was always there, but, you know, she never did hug me. So, you know, I, I do feel like an em empathetic person, but I feel like I constantly need touch. You know, I constantly need uh, to feel loved and accepted. And I haven't been in, in healthy relationships in the past, and so I was just wondering if maybe there's something that can come to mind that maybe I could start looking into or ways that I could start seeking that healing because I feel like even though I have tried for the last 15 years, I feel like I'm just uh, going around in the same circle and I always end up having sex with some person that for whatever reason I feel um, attracted to. So thank you so much for calling and for your vulnerability and what you shared speaks to such a deep loneliness that it makes sense that you're seeking that connection and that fulfillment in physical touch and in sex with people who you're not in a deeply committed relationship with. And the abandonment wound that you spoke about from when you were four years old, that is very, very real. A lot of times what happens with abandonment is the child doesn't understand that. It has no way to comprehend 
the complexity of the situation that created that abandonment. All your child part knows is that you were left. In response to this abandonment, what can happen is a shutdown of being available to be in connected loving relationships because our mind makes up during that time when we've been abandoned, our mind makes up that it's not safe to trust because people don't stay. It's not safe to be loving or to give ourselves to a relationship because it's too scary, because our core experience is that people leave us when we love them and when we need them, and that there's no one there to fulfill our need for physical connection, to be seen and to be known and to be held and to be loved. And so this is a very, very real wounded place. I think it's really beautiful that you have the awareness to acknowledge that that's a pain point for you that may be impacting how you relate to showing up in relationships and this addictive quality of physical connection makes a lot of sense to me in hearing your story, especially since you already have a history of addiction, being in recovery. And I want to just really applaud the strength that it takes to rise above those addictions, those chemical addictions, and to invite you to access that resourcefulness and that capacity to not engage in that harmful behavior, but to apply that to your sexual relationships as well. All of these ways that you abstain from drugs and alcohol, these are the same skills and the same tools that you can put into place as an investment in your own well-being to help keep you from giving yourself away in meaningless relationships that end up actually draining you because they compromise your self-worth and they leave you feeling even lonelier, perhaps, than you were before. So I would also invite you to carve out some intentional time to spend with this wounded four-year-old part of you that didn't understand why your mom and dad had to leave you. This part that was confused and lost and alone and scared. You get to kind of reparent yourself. And you spoke about being a single mom for 17 years and being completely devoted to your daughter. This is wonderful because what you're doing in that complete devotion is you're being the mom that you didn't get to have. You were there for your daughter when your parents weren't there for you. Now, you have this opportunity to do that for yourself. If you have the means to work with a somatic psychotherapist or a therapist who practices internal family systems, I would recommend getting some support for this work. If you don't, it is still possible to be with your inner child and to give yourself these experiences that you didn't get. You can do this through writing. You might choose to write a letter to that four-year-old part. Maybe it's a letter kind of explaining what you now understand as an adult 
about why your parents had to leave and that it wasn't her fault and that there was nothing that she did to push them away. Maybe even also imagining or having a real live conversation with your parents if they're still alive, but imagining what they might offer to this four-year-old if they could understand how much hurt and loneliness their absence caused her and whether they might have some soothing words for her. My guess is that leaving you was very painful for them and they may not have felt like they had any other option. You can also see if you can dig out a photograph of yourself at this young and tender age and just keeping it maybe somewhere where you see it quite frequently, maybe it's on the fridge or on the mirror in your bathroom, you can offer to this younger part of yourself the words and the love and the care that you didn't get to receive during that period of your parents' absence. So it might just be kind of looking lovingly at this photograph and saying, I love you, kiddo. I wish I didn't have to leave you. I wish I could be with you right now. The final thing that I will offer you is an invitation to work with your sex addiction using some of the practices that I've laid out earlier in this episode, just by making that attempt as best you can to identify that little bit of space that exists between the trigger, the loneliness in your case, and the behavior, which is seeking comfort and connection in the arms of somebody who may not make you feel fulfilled. So if you can kind of zero in on that space and pause there and start to bring some attention to the, the feelings, the grief that exists in your body, maybe making a little bit of space for yourself to feel that loneliness and to offer yourself some activities or even some relationships that are healthier because you've slowed down enough that you've created space between the impulse and the reaction so that hopefully you have just a little bit more capacity to proceed with all of your faculties online. Now, those of us in addiction recovery communities understand and know that relapse is a part of the cycle of addiction. And so I would invite you also to be very gentle with yourself. Anytime you notice that you're kind of beating up on yourself or you're placing yourself in a situation where your worthiness is being compromised or cast aside, just to return to that image of that four-year-old and to love yourself. And one of the ways you might be able to do this is just through some soothing somatic holds. So this might be just placing a hand on your heart and feeling the sensations of yourself holding yourself, being held. You might place your arms around each other, maybe grabbing onto your upper arms with each hand and just kind of holding yourself there in that gentle embrace. You might even say to yourself as you're giving yourself this physical touch, I've got you. I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. Another somatic hold is to just rest your face in your hands. So if you put your elbows on the table and make kind of a cradle with your hands, you can just kind of plop your face down in your hands and give yourself the softness and the receiving that are available in your hands. 
There are some other modalities that you could use if you want to look up on YouTube or Google tapping um, or even just looking up somatic holds. There's quite a few different options that you can find there. You can make up your own. I want to close with just some permission to give yourself the touch and the tenderness that you didn't get to receive during those empty years when you were so young that your brain and your body couldn't understand why you had been left and decided that you needed to avoid caring relationships and that you needed to compromise yourself in order to get your needs met. If I could offer some words to that four-year-old part of you, I would just let you know that you survived and that you grew up to be a mom who was really devoted to her daughter and that I'm sorry that you had to be alone during a time of your life when you really needed your mom and dad. I'll remind you that you are worthy of dignity, care, and attention, and that you matter, and that you do not need to go searching for love and belonging from people who aren't available to give it to you, because you have this capacity within yourself to give your wounded parts the love that they didn't get to receive. As you move forward through the rest of your day, I would invite you, before you step away from this podcast, to just plan one thing that you're going to do today to take care of yourself. And that's for all of you listening. What is one thing that you can do before this day is over to send yourself the love and care that you deserve? And to welcome yourself home. So thank you so much for calling in. I would like to invite anyone who's listening right now who is experiencing any kind of challenge or relational struggle or just a question that you have around your relationship to yourself to please go ahead and give me a call. I love receiving your questions and I look forward to welcoming you again next time you find your way to the Welcome You podcast. The Welcome You podcast is a production of Safe Within Wellness, an organization dedicated to supporting survivors of complex and systemic trauma in healing their wounds of belonging and thriving in relationship to themselves. Please help us keep our content ad-free and accessible to all by donating at safewithinwellness.com. Your presence and support matter more than you know.